Today our focus moves away from our own lives and considering the extent to which our own days are numbered and instead we're going to look today on Jesus, his life and the extent to which he lived knowing his days were numbered Um, and my prayer is that as we do so that God will give us wisdom to live and he will give us grace, tangible, substantive, enabling grace that we might serve him better and that his kingdom will and purposes may be done in our lives and through our lives. And so I want you to follow along with me this morning, if you would, in your Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and someone from the uh, uh, surf team, the ushers, will bring a Bible to you. Otherwise, please open your Bibles at Matthew chapter 16, which is where we're going to begin today. Um, looking at a series of passages when Jesus begins to speak to his disciples about his own death. And I want you to pay attention to how his disciples respond, how his disciples react as Jesus begins to articulate to them things about his death. And remember, this is in Matthew 16. This is before Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate in the church today. This is actually before the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter takes three of his disciples up onto the, the mountain. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. What's interesting, it says, verse 22, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Imagine that. Jesus speaks to you and you tell him off. You tell him that the thing he's just said is somehow incorrect. Peter is obviously a confident gentleman. Uh, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turns to Peter and he speaks to Peter with some astonishing words. He doesn't say, Peter, you're out of line. Peter, your words are ridiculous. Peter, you've pushed it too far. He says, Get behind me. Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, the things of man. And I think he's still speaking to Satan through the whole of that sentence. I'd often wondered whether he'd said, get behind me, Satan, and turns to Peter and says that you're an offense to me. I think he's speaking to Satan through the whole of this passage, which is interesting. It's, it's telling us that as the will of God is revealed through Jesus to his disciples, the will of God for Jesus' own life, the first response of humanity is that this can't be anything to do with God, where it's 100% to do with God. But the other thing we see revealed in this passage is that the one who is in opposition to the will of God, wherever and however it is revealed, is who? It is Satan. And the scripture tells us elsewhere in Ephesians 6, 6 verses 12 to 13 that we don't war, we don't wrestle, we're not struggling against, we're not pushing against, we're not being pressed by, we're not being squeezed by flesh or blood. But instead we wrestle, it says, against powers, against principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts. That means there's a lot of them, of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so as Jesus reveals his will to his disciples, their first response is, this is ridiculous. But that ridiculous response is actually being authored by who? Satan. The second reference I want you to look at is Matthew 17. So flick a little further forward in your Bible. Matthew 17, verse 22 says this. 
This seems to be the second time that Jesus mentions it because obviously we're still in the same gospel. Now while they were still, sorry, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and the third day he will be raised up. And look at their response. No longer are they saying this isn't what is for you, Jesus, but they're now exceedingly sorrowful. They're sad. Mark that word sorrowful because we're going to return to it a little later. Luke 9.45, you don't have to turn there. Add some other words. It says they don't understand what he's saying because it's hidden from them. They don't perceive it. So the second thing we're understanding about wherever the will of God is, is not only is it sometimes in stark opposition to, to what we want and to what the world wants and the author trying to keep us aligned with that thing that isn't the will of God is in fact Satan himself. But we realize that the things of God, the will of God, is sometimes hard to understand. It's unfathomable. In this instance, it says it's hidden from them so they don't perceive it. So it's God himself who's stopping them from understanding his will. So it means that we have to pray that God reveals his will to us. So the will of God isn't a simple thing. The will of God isn't just lying around there. The will of God has to be revealed to us. The third reference, you've got to flick a little further forward in your Bibles, please, to Luke 18. Would you move to Luke chapter 18, verse 31? So we've seen one reference, a second reference. Jesus speaks to them, it seems again, a third time. Luke 18, 31, he says, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. So they're getting closer and closer to what we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a stallion of a horse, but on a lowly donkey. And he takes the 12 aside and says, we're going up to Jerusalem and all the things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. It's interesting. Jesus understands what the will of God for him is by reading the Scripture. And so you'll often find the will of God for your life written in Scripture. There are things made plain in Scripture, things to do, things not to do, things to flee from, things to run to. You'll find them written in Scripture. Jesus understands the will of God for his own life through Scripture, written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man. All those things must accomplish, be accomplished. Verse 32, he will be delivered to the Gentiles and they will, and will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. And it says, verse 34, but again, they don't understand what he's talking about. That tells us that wrestling with the will of God isn't easy. That sometimes when we sense what the will of God is, that God wants us to do something, to go somewhere, to say something, to not say something, to abstain from something, to stop something, to change something, that immediately it's hard. Immediately there's a sense in which this brings sorrow to me to contend with this. That easily um, I, 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 can, I, can, I can choose the thing that isn't the will of God because my flesh says that it's not the will of God. There's no way that this thing that God's asking me to do could be him. It must be something else. And Jesus is telling us that sometimes the actual author of that contrary voice is Satan himself, who's trying to hold us back from doing what Jesus wants us to do. Now, if you're still in Matthew, uh, sorry, you're not in Matthew, you just went to Luke 18. Go back to Matthew. This time, go to Matthew 26. So now, we're moving closer and closer to the cross, and now we're coming to Gethsemane. Gethsemane actually is a word that means, and this tells you everything you need to know about it. Imagine that 
Someone says, we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we tell you that the meaning of the place Gethsemane is a place where olives are crushed and olives are pressed. It's at the foot of Mount Olive, and it seems to be the place historically where they, they crush, they press, they squeeze olives. And so if someone said, if I said, let's all go to Gethsemane now, wherever it was, there was a place in Marietta somewhere called Gethsemane, would we be anticipating that that might be a place where we're going to be crushed a little? and squeezed and pressed. It's interesting, Jesus chooses this place for his own crushing, pressing, squeezing before he gets to the cross. Matthew 26, if you're all there, verse 36 says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. John 12, 27 adds this, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose I've come to this hour. Continuing in Matthew verse 39, he goes a little further and he falls on his face and prays, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as... Everybody touches hearts, not as I will. Not what I want, but what you want. Not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. Luke twenty-two forty-five 45 adds this phrase, Jesus finds them sleeping for sorrow. Sleeping because the sorrow is so crushing, so overwhelming in that place. And he says to Peter, come on, Peter, what? could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he goes away and prays, saying, my father, if it is possible, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again, verse 43, and found them asleep again, for their eyes are heavy. So he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Luke 22 adds this, that an angel appears to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prays more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't think the scripture says he began to sweat blood. As I'm reading, it says this sweat is like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Returning to Matthew 26, verse 45, he comes to his disciples and says to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So those are the scriptures I wanted us to read before I make a few observations based on those passages. And the first observation is I want you to notice this thing that is a sorrowful soul that arises whenever there is an expression, a manifestation of the will of God. Because if we don't understand that when the will of God is, is operating, when God wants his will to become something that we partner with him in, that we can become sorrowful. And if you don't understand that we become sorrowful when God's will is at work, you might not perceive when God is trying to get you to pay attention to his will. 
But if you recognize, you see it with his disciples. When Jesus tells them that he must go up to Jerusalem, his disciples become sorrowful. When you see Jesus himself in Gethsemane wrestling with the will of God and recognizing that there's a cup that someone has to drink, and if this cup isn't taken away from him and he has to drink it, this is a terrible thing. He himself becomes sorrowful. And so might it be that when we wrestle with the will of God, that we experience some extent of sorrow. And if you recognize that, it might mean that when we give definition to the sorrow that we're experiencing, we might realize that God's will is something that he's trying to impress upon us. What does it mean to have a sorrowful soul? Does it mean, does it mean that we feel a little agitated, a little unsettled, a little upset? You've heard of the term goading, when someone's goading something. A goad was a sharp in- implement that they used to, 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 to cause animals to go where they want the animals to go. And Paul, it says, before he became Paul, when he was Saul, is resisting the impressing of, of the will of God upon his life. Because there's a point when eventually Paul, is, who is still Saul, is stopped on the Damascus Road and he's thrown from his horse and he's struck blind. Because God says that him doing his will is so important that he throws him from his horse and strikes him blind and speaks to him. But it says, Paul, it was hard for you to resist the goads, to kick against the goads. So in other words, there's been this goading, this prodding in Paul's life saying, Paul, not that, this, Paul, this, not that. And you realize that that goading, that pressing, that squeezing, that sorrow that we begin to feel sometimes in our life is 100% the will of God and us wrestling with it. I just want to give voice to that this morning because sometimes we think, I don't know how to discern the will of God. I'm wondering this, that if we don't have a sorrowful soul, it might be that our lives are entirely our will. If you're not agitated by anything, If there's no prodding in your life to stop something, to start something, to go somewhere, to not go somewhere, to say something, to not say something, if your life is so plain and simple, if my life is so plain and simple with no agitation, no goading, no prodding, am I just doing my will? Because I don't perceive another will that is contrary to mine, another will saying that, Douglas, I want this, but God says, not that. This And that brings me to this place of sorrow and struggling and agitation and upset. The conflict that arises because of God's will and actually we recognize also because of Satan's opposition to the will of God. We realize that there's a wrestling that's going on, but it's not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places, the rulers of the dark age that do not want us to do the will of God. So anytime we try to do the will of God, whatever it is, This is a struggle. But recognize who the struggle is against. But Jesus prays nevertheless, despite the sorrow, despite the struggle, despite the wrestling, not as I will, but as you will. And this isn't a prayer Jesus has just made up on this day because Jesus, when he teaches teaches his disciples to pray, says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom Come, thy, what's the next bit? Your will be done. Jesus has probably prayed this daily, consistently. In my life, and we can pray this, in my life, God, through my life, your will be done. You pray it every morning, in my life, through my life, your will be done. 
And I guarantee you, when you start praying that, things are going to change. Because the wrestling and the struggling is going to begin because you're going to begin to perceive a will that's not your will. And the direction that you're heading on, whatever it is, you might find that God turns your direction around. The scripture says, there's the way that seems right to man, but in the end, that way leads to death. And so the turn from the way to death to the way that leads to life is 100% the way around, but God begins to turn us through the manifestation and the speaking of his will to us. But at some point, we've got to say with clarity, not what I will, but your will. And that's the beginning of it. God's calling us to his will, to align with his will, and to work. I want us to recognize that God calls us to work. Sure, he calls us to Sabbath rest, but apart from Sabbath rest, he calls us to work. What is the beginning of the work that God calls us to? John 6, 29 says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. I want you to understand that believing in Jesus is not just something that I do in my head and hold it there. That's not what it means to be Christian, to just say I believe in Jesus and zip, stop, end there. I believe in Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you believe in Jesus, great. Line in the sand, it's done. Because James 2, 17 to 20 says this, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. So do we show the world that we believe in Jesus by how we live? Not by what we say, we believe. Do we show the world we believe in Jesus by the friendships we keep? By the way our lives work out day after day, week after week? Because the scripture continues in James 2 verse, 20, verse 19. It says, even the demons believe in God. The Christians, it's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Because the demons do that. But they don't do his will. The thing that marks us out from the demons is that we believe and our belief is worked out in our works. And so God's calling us to work. God's calling us to do. God's calling us to something. And the manifestation, the beginning of his will, I'm telling you, is going to bring you to a place of sorrow and agitation and difficulty and upset. And the question is, what do we do with that? Because the scripture says, this is my second observation, we have willing spirits but weak flesh. Jesus says the flesh is spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That tells me that this God thing that I'm feeling I want to do, I can't do it. This God thing that I start to do, I'm going to stop doing. The thing that he tells me to not do, I'm going to do that. That's the entirety of Romans chapter 7. You wake up in the morning, I want to serve God, I feel the will of God, I start doing it, and I find that I can't do it. The things I've got on my list of don't do's, the things I write every year, and the beginnings of the, 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 the New Year's resolutions are the very things I find myself doing by January the second, because Jesus says the spirit, the good purposes, the perfect purposes, the holy purposes, the world-changing purposes, the transformational purposes of God, the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And far too frequently, I, we, join me in this, we resolve our weak flesh and the sorrowful feeling that we have. How? How do we do that? It's interesting because it says Jesus finds them sleeping. 
thinking about our church mission statement, to awaken each other to live kingdom dreams in a... What if you switched the word world, world, world for church? We can't wake a world up if we are asleep. We can't dare to say, I'm going to go out into the highways and byways and try and wake up the world that's asleep because we might be asleep ourselves. And it might be the reason that we're asleep is this, is because of this conflict with the will of God that causes us to sleep because of the sorrow. Think of the many things we do to comfort our flesh. So my flesh is agitated, and, and I'm naming the reason for that agitation is it's because God wants me to work. God's calling me to something. God's asking me to do something. God's calling me to go somewhere. God's calling me to a different life work. God's calling me to a different country to live in. God's calling me to, to, to break a relationship that's no good for me. God's calling me to do something that I don't really like a lot. And we recognize the sorrow that builds up in us. And instead of doing the will of God, we just numb the flesh. How do we do that? We shop, I heard from over here. We binge watch streaming TV. We play video games. We eat. We eat a lot after church on Sunday. I was thinking about this. I'm wondering whether we just get so agitated with the will of God all over the South on a Sunday that the very first thing we do is not the will of God. I just got to go and calm this flesh down because this is not comfortable. I've squirmed a little in my seat. I've been upset a little. I hear what God's telling me to do. I'm just going to go eat. Right? Maybe. Substances. Some people turn to substances to numb it. Alcohol works for a period. Sex. Whatever people do, whatever we do, whatever I do, I want you to ask this question. Is it because we recognize God's will and it begins to make us sorrowful, and our spirits are willing, but the flesh is weak, so the answer is, let me just numb and please and quiet that flesh, because the place of pressing called Gethsemane is not a nice place to live in. So how do we get ourselves out of the crushing, the pressing of Gethsemane? All those things. Look at your lives. Reflect your lives. I was thinking about my life. Even preparing this, the time I found myself going to the kitchen, I need another, another spicy hot cross bun. You don't know what a hot cross bun is. This is British manifestation. The bun has a cross on it. It's obviously a religious Easter cross, cross, cross bun. Um, the British store by Whole Foods sells them, and I buy packs of them. And the, the more I was squeezed, the more of those I was eating. <laughs> Right? What came next? What do they do? My son owns a number of cars, and they're all the kind of cars I like to drive. He's lent me one. I thought, let me just go drive that a little. My flesh is placated. Isn't this how we live? It's how I live. And what I'm encouraging us to do is instead, is to, I'm just trying to open our eyes a little. I'm praying that God opens our eyes a little so we understand that if I'm feeling the goading, the prodding, the provoking, the agitation that leads to sorrow, that instead of running from it, we dwell in it. What if we stay in that place? What if we accept that good comes from Gethsemane? What if we accept that if we accept 
the pressing, the crushing, the squeezing that is this conflict between my will and God's will, at the other side of it, something good comes. And the good thing that comes is the will of God gets done by this person who previously didn't want to do it. And isn't that a good thing? Because if we're walking 100% the other way from God and God's provoking and agitation causes me sorrow, but I just keep numbing my sorrow, I'm never going to make a decision for Jesus instead of dwelling in that place and eventually allowing the sorrow, allowing the pressing, allowing the crushing to push me to a place that I resolve in doing his will. The oil, the fire, the power, the spirit that is produced if we stay in that place and don't run from it and don't numb ourselves is important. And I thought this was interesting. I was reflecting on this as I was preparing this. There's a point when Jesus is with a woman at the well and the disciples go off, I think it's John chapter four, to go and get some food. And they, they come back and, and it says at some point that they say, Rabbi, eat. Because he hasn't bothered to eat. They've gone to get food and all he's been doing is talking to this woman and telling her things about her life and talking to her about living water and important things that really matter. And he says, I don't need to eat because I have food of a kind that you don't know. And I want to encourage you to ask God what that is. What is the food that is not eating out on a Sunday? What is the food that is not playing another video game? What is the food that is not binge-watching six seasons of nonsense? What is the food that is not living vicariously through the successes of a sports team, gentlemen? And we're up when they're up, but they were down when they're down. Why don't we get ourselves out of that? Because they don't care about you. They ain't breaking their Saturdays and Sundays and spending entire days watching you do your thing. So why do we do that and watch their thing? Because we're living vicariously through them and finding food and sustenance and our ups in them when Jesus says there's a food of another kind. There's a food of another kind in Gethsemane when Jesus stays in this place and the scripture says that an angel comes and strengthens him. Don't we want that instead? Do you want your sports team to win or angel strength? Do you want, I don't know, seed, <laughs> marry at a diner, the best that they can give or angel strength in the place of pressing? Do you want another pair of shoes, ladies, men, quickly? <laughs> or angel strength do you want another episode of your favorite show or angel strength do you want whatever, whatever release that you have or angel strength food to eat that you don't know of and his disciples say to another do you think someone gave him food while we were away he says he probably shook his head a lot right he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you realize the faith that's required to live like this? It means that we say that I'm hurting a little because of the will of God, but instead of satisfying my flesh and my upset and the sorrow that I'm feeling, I'm just going to press in 
to the thing of God, and I'm going to trust that God's going to meet me and find me in that place with a kind of food that I ain't yet to experience. But we believe in faith that it's real. Our food is to do the will of him who sent Jesus, who saved us, who died for us, who rose for us, who sits at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for us. Our will is to do his, our work is to do his will, our food is to do his will, and to finish his work. Therefore, the fourth observation is this. Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray. You see, sometimes I realize the reason we don't pray a lot is because we don't realize the war we're in. We don't realize that the opposer to the will of God is Satan, hosts of wickedness, and that this is hard. Christianity is hard. I, I, I can't tell you anything else. I can't present something to you that is a fallacy, that is a lie. There was an analogy once of a, of a, of a boxing trainer who, who trains his, 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 the boxer to go and fight, and he's sitting in his corner, as trainers do, and the boxer goes out in the first round and, and fights and throws punches, but he gets hit more than he hits. And the count of punches is, you got hit a lot. <laughs> you didn't land very many. And he comes back to the trainer and says, I'm doing everything you said. And the trainer says, yeah, just keep it up. You're winning, my man. Just keep doing the thing I told you to do. Keep going out there and doing the same thing. So he goes back out in round two and he keeps fighting. He's doing the same thing. He's told him how to plant his feet. He's told him how to switch his stance. He's told him how to jab. He's told him how to hook. He's told him how to do all of these things. But he gets hit more than he hits. And now he's bleeding. And now he can't see out of his right eye. So, and so he's in all sorts of problems. And he comes back to the trainer and he says to the trainer, I'm doing everything you said. And the trainer says, you are. And my man, you're winning. You're ahead on points. And he's like, oh God. So he goes out and he does the same thing again. Church is not meant to be like this. I cannot lie to you on a Sunday and tell you that the world is going to love your Christianity and that there's not an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And so if I tell you that, and it's all sweetness and light, and it's all easy, and it's all downhill, and it's all simple, and it's all, all weak, right? And you go out and the world whips you up and beats you up. You come back and say, but I was doing everything you said, and I got beat up. So I'm instead saying, this is Christianity. Paul does this profit and loss accounting in Philippians 2 or 3, wherever it is, where, where he stacks up the entirety of his life and says, if I put all these things in one column, I will trade them all and consider them loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And he says, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, not only in his resurrection power, but also, this is a bit we don't like, in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the whole of Jesus. I don't want to just know the power stuff. Oh God, fill me with power, fill me with power, fill me with power. Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. What about the sufferings? And so that's why our journey today is with Jesus approaching his own death. To see how Jesus approaches his own death so we can consider how we might live better for him today. Watch and pray because our spirit is willing but our flesh is weak. If we don't watch and pray, the thing that we will to do for God, we will never do. If you don't have people praying for you in whatever the spiritual endeavor is that you feel God's calling you to do, you will never start it. If you start it, you'll never finish it. This is why our lives should be filled with prayer. Filled with prayer. 
Because God opens their eyes to see the nature of the actual battle that we're in. If you look at the statistics of the country, you'll see the reality of the place we live in. You'll see the extent of addiction. You'll see the extent and the numbers of people who commit suicide. You'll see the extent of brokenness and hurt and suffering and violence and all these things. We don't read those symptoms and recognize that Satan's doing pretty well. We miss something, right? So watch and pray. So before I come to the last observation, it's simply a recap. As we look to those passages, embrace that sorrowful soul. It's okay. Recognize that it might be God trying to get your attention, trying to get you to do something. Recognize that we have willing spirits but weak flesh. Recognize that our tendency is to sleep because of the sorrow instead of resolving that sorrow in doing his will. Recognize that we need to watch and pray. Jesus says to stand, that we don't fall through temptation to trials, to tests. The word is used interchangeably in the scripture. And the last thing I want to say is this, and we should pursue God. Pursue God. Hebrews 11.6 says, God is a rewarder of those who seek him with diligence. So you just got to open a scripture and look at that and says, the word says that if I pursue you diligently, zealously, passionately, single-mindedly, there's a reward. That when I'm provoked by your will, I'm going to press in. I'm praying for my husbands and my husband and my wife. I'm praying for my kids. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, members of the church congregation, that we're praying for one another, saying that when, 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 when this person hears the will of God, may he, may she have the strength, the courage to persevere, to press in, to dwell in that place of, of pressing and to resolve that in doing the actual will of God, whatever that is. God rewards those who diligently seek him. And you'll notice that I have deliberately stayed away today from telling you what the work that God requires of you is. Because you know. You all know. The only thing I said is that we have to believe in him who he sent. It starts there. But having believed and holding that belief, what's God saying to you? What's the will of God that brings you to a place of sorrow because you don't like it a whole lot and you might not want to do it, that you've been resolving in the wrong things for years, weeks, months, maybe decades. That bring upon us a tendency to sleep. But instead, my encouragement for us is, that instead, let's watch and pray. Watch and pray. And if the thing that God is speaking to you about now is huge and impossible, great. Because nothing is difficult for him. Do you think when the angel shows up to Mary and says that you're about to conceive and you're going to bear the Son of God, that that sounds easy? Ladies, angel appears, you're about to have a child and your husband's going to have nothing to do with it. 
huge stretches. So is God telling you something that seems ridiculous now? Something that's so impossible. Something that seems unachievable. Something that you're afraid of. Something that you're embarrassed to do in front of someone else. My encouragement to you is do it anyway. Do it anyway. Resolve the tension in the will of the Lord through that place of pressing, through Gethsemane, through the crushing, through the uncomfortable experience, through the goading. And why must we resolve it? Because the world needs it. If God's speaking to Paul and telling him, quit the persecuting Christians, Paul, and start planting churches. Paul doesn't do that. Where are we? And so why is it any less important for me or for you? Amen? We're going to move to communion now. I'm going to call the, the band back up. And I wanted this communion just to be a period, a moment where you can just reflect on God's will for you that may have been making you feel a little uncomfortable, whatever it is. We've moved back from the individually wrapped communions to communion to communion that if you want, there is bread there. The cups are not for you to pick up and empty. It's for you to dip bread in. Marvelously made bread that doesn't cause the juice to drip all over the floor. It's perfect bread. <laughs> and you can break it if you want. But as the band plays, and if, you, and if you don't want to do it this way, we still have the other cups. Before, before you move to communion, let me read these verses as I always do. Paul says, I receive from the Lord that which I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, so that's the night we've been reading about in Gethsemane, he takes bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he continues, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. My brothers and sisters, until he comes. Amen.